Happy New Year, everybody. Hey, I'm just kind of curious, since this is the first day of the year, how many of you still make New Year's resolutions? Let me see your hands. Come on. Oh, a lot of smart people in this place. How, how many of you disguise that with making new goals for the year? Okay, yeah, so we're, we're, I'm in good company then. Well, good morning. We are concluding a series where we've been focusing on the names of Jesus, and we've been adoring what these names mean to us. And I forgot the adoroscope this morning. Do you remember that? What was that? Yeah, it was a, it was a paper towel. Hold. No, it was just a piece of paper. But it was a cylindrical shape with a hole that helped us narrow our field of view. And we were using that as an example to help us really focus in on what these names meant. And we've dealt with names like Emmanuel, which means Jesus or God is with us. And we've dealt with names like the Anointed One, which means that he's the one that came to fix everything in life that was broken for us. We've, we've dealt with the Good Shepherd and we've dealt with uh, Jesus, our Savior, and this indescribable gift. And this morning, we're going to focus on... We take a brief look at the sun. And I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. So if you go to the New Testament, it'll go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It'll be the fourth book in the New Testament. Very first page there. We're actually going to look at chapter one. And I want us to take a brief look at a couple of people in these opening chapters of John's Gospel that, that are examples, living examples to me of what it means to live life where we see both grace and truth lived out. John chapter 1, our focus verse this morning is going to be verse 12, but I'm actually going to read from verses 9 through 14. So listen to these words, and my translation may be slightly different than yours because I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And listen to what the Word of the Lord says. It says, The one who is the true light and gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He came into the very world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But, everybody say but. When you see these conjunctions, it's time to pay attention. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the rights to become the children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. And so the Word became human or flesh and made His home among us, and He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. May the Lord Jesus bless the reading of His Word to our hearts and minds are in this our Lord's day. I want us to take a look at a couple, just a couple of people. So I'm going to take us through the first three chapters, chapter 1 and, and chapters 3. And I just want to focus on a couple of stories that come from these. And I want to introduce us to a couple of people, one by the name of Nathaniel, who was one of Jesus' disciples, and another whose name was Nicodemus. And Nathaniel is this kind of guy who, you know, who just immediately seems to be able to respond to the very first evidence that came to him that Jesus was God. Well, Nicodemus, on the other hand, is, he's a religious leader. He's a smart person who realized that Jesus was special, that he was a teacher that came from God. But when I read this story, I see that, that he's a man that really struggled with his first encounter with Jesus. And for me, there's this common connection that I see with these two stories that demonstrates for us 
how many of us that come from different walks of life, how we can find salvation in God's gift, the Son. I want to tell you about somebody that I've known for a long time. His name is Steve. When I first met Steve, he was the kind of person who was super intelligent, but he was, he was always really uncomfortable about this feeling with this God thing. And we used to go to church together, and he was the kind of guy who seldom went, but when he did go, he always became aware that his moral standards were lesser than the people at church. And it made him feel uncomfortable. So when Steve began to learn things like the Ten Commandments and he heard the words of Jesus that come from the Sermons of the Mount, there was this growing awareness. He became even more uncomfortable than ever. And, and he learned that the more he became aware of the teachings of Jesus, the greater the awareness grew within him that there was this gap, this, this sinful gap, where he, he recognized there was a gap between what his life was, what the Bible said was right, and who the Christians said God really was. And there was a real disconnect in his life. And finally one day when I was drinking a cup of coffee with Steve, we went through a lot of pots of coffee. He looked at me and he just let me know that he'd had all the light and all the God talk that he'd wanted. In fact, every time that we talked about God here, he was around people that talked about God. Just flashes of guilt and shame came into his mind. And he was at this point in the process where the light was still penetrating the darkness in his life. And even though he was unaware of it and I was unaware of it, it was still bringing transformation. And his behavior at this point, the harder he kicked against God, the more he tried to reject Jesus, the deeper God was dealing with him, the deeper the light was penetrating the darkness in his life. In his mind, he could never measure up to everything that he thought God was asking of him. Man, that's, a, that's really a good place to be, whether we recognize it or not. Because when he compared God's standards to his own, they were just too much, and I just want to say something to those of us who are Christians here this morning. How many Christians do we have in the house? Let me see your hands. We'll pray for you, the rest of you. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes those of us who make up the church, sometimes we can make people feel this way because we talk about God, we talk about truth, we talk about righteousness and we talk about the laws, but sometimes we, I think we do it way too much without ever sharing with others our own personal struggles, struggles with sin and the way that God is lovingly and graciously and mercifully bringing us along despite our struggles with sin and inviting us to the truth of the grace that is found in his son. You know, I really think that we could be much more influential and help more people if we could only learn to tell our personal stories more. And it's not that there's no value 
And being at the place where Steve was, where he was aware of his sin gap, because this is the place between who I really am and light in comparison to the righteousness and the perfection of who God really is. And I, I think that's part of the transformation process. It's been a part of my walk with Christ ever since I came to him, probably more so in my latter years than in my earlier years. Not only have I become more aware of J.R.'s sinfulness and hard-headedness and hard-heartedness, but it's also made me a greater person who appreciates and understands at a deeper level the magnanimous grace of God who gave his son for me. The sad part about Steve's experience is that when he was around church people, he, he was made to feel less than or not as good as, rather than just a brother in the midst of good company who had found freedom and was now learning how to live into this forgiveness and live into this acceptance found in Christ. And part of that had to do with <clears throat> some of my overzealousness in my younger years. I think it's important that we remember the sin in our lives from which Grace and truth. Everybody say grace and truth. From which grace and truth has set us free. It's part of the very fabric of who we are. And no two pieces in here this morning, no two lives are exactly the same. John, in this first chapter, uses the words grace and truth twice. And I I think it's these words about Jesus that would have surprised people like Steve if he could have understood them earlier in his walk. It says in verse 14 that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And verse 15, John testified concerning him, and he cried out, saying, This is the one whom I spoke about. He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Now look at verse 16 and 17. Out of his fullness we have received grace and place of grace already given. We have received grace and place of grace already given. Verse 17. For the law, everybody say the law, was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the Son. John says that the light of Jesus helps us to see that God is full of grace and truth. And that's the true picture. What's revealed in Jesus the Son is not some higher, more burdensome standard of morality. Instead, Jesus revealed that God wants to relate to you and to me the same way that a father wants to relate to his children through grace and truth. Not just the law. I want to say something to, every, to everyone in here this morning who, who has ever felt like Steve. I want to encourage you to remember this, that The Son came that we might have life. Experience the God kind of life. That kind of love. That kind of mercy. That kind of energy. And live life abundantly experiencing life on this earth that is grounded and protected on these foundational pillars of, say it with me, grace and truth. Here's the good news. Years later, Steve 
when I wasn't around, surrendered his life to Jesus. We've had conversations about that. We've had conversations about how that even when he was increasing his awareness of God's law that created this sin gap between where he was and who he understood God to be, the same light that pointed out his sin when it penetrated deeper pointed Steve to the sun. You know, everyone is, is afraid or struggles to believe that God loves them in some areas, like Steve. But I've also met other people in life who seem to have always had this sense of God's love. I, I remember asking a young lady one time about her conversion experience, and this is what she said to me. She said, Pastor J.R., I, can't, I really can't put my finger on any experience. I can't really put it on any date, she says. Is, All I can tell you is that I've always had this overwhelming awareness of God's love for me. She was a young lady in our church that exuded a life of righteousness and peace and joy and fellowship in the Holy Spirit. So when I read the stories of John now, now as the years have gone by, I, I can't help believe that it was the same in Jesus' day, that there were some people in the Bible, and I'm going to introduce us to one of them, who just seemed to be more sensitive and naturally closer to spiritual awakenings and the things of God in various areas of their life. And when the gospel seems to be presented to them, it seems to be easy for them to believe. They just hear it. There's not a lot of questions. They experience it, it transforms them, they receive it, and man, they follow Jesus. And I think Nathaniel is one of these guys when I see him. I think Nathaniel is one of these types of people, and you'll find his story in John chapter 1, verses 43 and following, who responded easily to Jesus. The Bible says one day Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, hurried to find Nathanael to tell him that they had found Jesus the Christ. And he was sure that this was the Messiah, sure that he was the promised one, and it was Jesus of Nazareth. And like most people initially, Nathanael's skeptical, and I've learned through this, when I've meditated on this, you know, I've learned over the years that you must never mistake a person's meekness for weakness. Sometimes they can be a bear cat. I think in Nathaniel's mind, he was thinking what he'd heard the prophets teach. And I think he was thinking that there's not one prophet that has said that anything good will come from Nazareth. And then Nathaniel goes to Philip to meet this man, Jesus, for himself. And, and we, when he sees him, I think he's overwhelmed with the way that Jesus approaches him. And I want you to listen to what Jesus says to him. These are the first words that Nathaniel hears in his conversation with Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, Here's an Israelite in whom there is nothing false, or this is a man of integrity. This looked right into his heart. And then when Jesus goes on to describe the place where Philip had found Nathaniel, which is way away from Jesus, he's even impressed more. And he's impressed by the prophetic nature of this statement, so much so that he confesses in verse 49, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And he became a devoted follower of Jesus from that day forth. 
That's really all we hear about him. Now, whether you're a Steve or whether you're a Nathaniel, I think most of us live with preconceived ideas about what we think God is like and what he's not like and how he should act if, if we were God. If we were sitting in the throne, this is how we would do things. I hear conversations like that from people often. Because our ideas of God don't always, our preconceived ideas of God don't always line up with who God really is. Sometimes we're like Nathaniel and and or Steve. Now I realize that it might be, seem insignificant for us to describe the place where Nathaniel was when Philip found him, but Nathaniel immediately recognized the hand of God. Here's why I think that this is important. I think it's important for us to recognize these small miracles that Jesus performs in our lives. First of all, because he performed them for his disciples, and secondly, How many of you are disciples? So I want us to understand that when we explore God's word, when we live in a relationship with him, I think we can expect him to be at work in our lives. I think we can expect him to be at work in our cell groups and the leadership teams and the serving teams, the ministry teams that we're a part of. I think that we can live into this dynamic with a living son who speaks to us who empowers us and who equips us and who literally controls the universe in which we live. Now, I realize that these might not be spectacular or public, but I believe that in a myriad of ways, God is always speaking to us and miraculously looking for ways to to lead us and to guide us in righteousness and truth. You know, I, I think people who are willing to put aside their preconceived notions of who God is and really become dwellers in the Word and learn from the Word will be the kind of people whose misunderstandings are set aside when the truth reveals to them who the Son really is. And when we're in relationship with him, grace and truth kind of linger in our lives, shaping us and and molding us and fashioning us into something new. And I kind of like to call this living life with the evidence of the, the fragrance of grace. You know, if you come into our house, we live in these condos over here, my house will always smell really good because of Miss Terry. She's always got candles and things going on in our house that just makes it feel good, smell good, welcoming. When you walk into our office, Jennifer has always got essential oils going on through the, through the office, and it, it smells good. You walk into Leah's office, and she's got another animizer going, and more essential oils going on, and it just kind of creates this ethos. It kind of creates this environment where good smells just linger, and I like that. And I really like knowing that I'm in a relationship with a God whose grace and truth never leaves me, never abandons me, but is always lingering in my life to love me, to mold me, to shape me, living and doing life in the fragrance of grace. I don't know about you, but it, it just makes my life smell better. 
Finally, I want to direct our attention to the other guy who went by the name of Nicodemus. And he's not some common unknown disciple like Nathaniel. This is an important guy. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council and he's a guy of influence. And here's why in Jesus' time, during the time, in these times, both civil and religious laws were, were the same, which meant that the code of the Old Testament was interpreted by the rabbis for generations, and it was this law that governed the Jewish communities wherever you found one. And the Romans allowed this. And Nicodemus was one of these guys that you went to to get the right interpretation of the law. And whatever he said went. He was one of the final authorities. In fact, in the minds of the Israelites, he, he sat in a, in a place of divine authority. Literally, in their eyes, he sat in the seat of Moses and served at a capacity where he judicially and ethically and morally and spiritually judged the law of the land for the Jewish people. And he had the sword of Rome to back him. So Nicodemus wasn't just an anybody. He was, he was really somebody. And when I read his first words, they're really revealing to me in the third chapter of John. You can turn to chapter 3 and follow along because I think they express a growing awareness that was shared with some of the Jewish leaders. That Jesus was obviously some kind of teacher, but the problem was is that he had no recognizable training. He didn't have the right degrees hanging on his wall. And this posed a question for them as to what kind of teacher Jesus really was. And this was the million-dollar question. So Nicodemus comes to him, and they begin to have a conversation. And Nicodemus seems to be convinced that Jesus is some kind of a teacher. And not just any kind of teacher, but one that's sent from God. And then as he has this conversation with him, it progresses to the point that one of the things that had brought him to this conclusion was that Jesus had done all these miracles. He'd made blind people see. Not a metaphor, it really happened. He made lame people walk. He made lepers whole. And he came to him and he he recognized that there was such an anointing on him that the ministry that he had was so extraordinary that he had to be a teacher sent from God. And I've often thought that, I've often wondered why they didn't recognize this because Nicodemus wasn't just any rabbi, he was the lead dog. He was the lead teacher of all the rabbis. He was the teacher of Israel. The place that only one sat. And I've often wondered that if this was the highest and most respected teacher amongst the rabbis, and he recognized Jesus as one sent from God, then what really stood in the way of the religious leaders from making this discovery public? You ever thought about that? You know, some people like Steve struggle for years with belief. Then there are those like Nathaniel who they have one little experience and they just buy in. And then you've got people like Nicodemus who are smart. They should know. But they don't know. And then they're surrounded by 
a group of people who simply choose not to believe the revelation that was made so public through Jesus the Son. And I think this is a blatant sin of unbelief, very, very popular, but a dangerous position. And it's a position that many people take today. And it's one that they choose for themselves. In verses 3 through 4, Jesus shocks Nicodemus when he says that, uh, he says, Hey, Nicodemus, to even catch a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, a person's got to be born again. And Nicodemus really begins to struggle with this. And it's not, he's not struggling with the idea of being born again. Because born again was a concept that was, that was practiced by the Israelites, especially a Pharisee. Born again, born anew, born from above was, was a term. And there were procedures and, and areas in their life where they believed that this always took place. What confused him was how a man of his age could be born again when he'd reached the age of a senior citizen already. And even more importantly, he'd already fulfilled all of the qualifications to be born again as a Pharisee. Now, I didn't know this for a long time, but there are six ways that a Pharisee can be born again. And two of them could never apply to Nicodemus. One, when you're a Gentile and you convert to Judaism, you're considered born again. Secondly, when an Israelite becomes king, that's considered a born again experience. And so in his life, two of the six are completely out of the circle of life. And remember, this just isn't any teacher. This is the teacher of Israel who's questioning this. And one of the things that he's struggling with, it's strange, not because it's a new concept. It's strange because he's already met four of the requirements four different times to be born again. A Jew is considered to be born again at 13 at their first bar mitzvah. A Jew is considered to be born again when they get married. A Jew is considered to be born again when they're ordained a rabbi. And the last one... You're considered to be born again when you take the seat as the teacher of Israel. And he'd met every one of these requirements. So he's puzzled. He's frustrated and he he asks Jesus, he says, you can't mean that I need to re-enter my mother's womb and be born. What What do you mean born again? But Jesus' explanation of the new birth demonstrates that it's a work of God by his spirit. That it's not just something physical that we go through, but it's spiritual. Salvation alone is the work of God, and it demonstrates that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Jesus answered him in verse 5. He said, Nicodemus, listen very carefully to me. I want you to get this. I don't want you to miss it. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. He said, flesh gives birth to flesh, and the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The the wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born by the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus says. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Then Jesus gets real, and he looks at Nicodemus, and he says, Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel. Why don't you get this? I think, for me, this conversation, because some, sometimes I'm kind of like Nicodemus. <laughs> sometimes I'm a little slower in the uptake. When I read these words as I've meditated over the years, here, here's one of the things that I get from this. 
I think Jesus' answer helps us see that the revelation of grace and truth is, is not something that was ever foreign to the writings of the law, ever foreign to the writings of the prophet, that it's always been embedded in the very fabric of God's redemptive plan to send his son so that we might have life. Jeremiah prophesied a time when God would make a new covenant with Israel. He said a time would come when he would put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is a a picture of that being fulfilled. A picture of what happens when a person is born again. A picture of what happens when a person is born from above or or born anew. They get a new heart. It's It's a new inauguration into a brand new life, a new way of living. The old is left behind and we embrace a kingdom way of living that's governed by the king and and his decrees. I think these are the kind of passages that I think Jesus had hoped Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, would have understood. So my question to us is how do we experience grace and truth? Are we like my friend Steve? Are we like Nathaniel, who receives it with easy understanding? Are we like Nicodemus, where we've already accumulated a lot of knowledge and we think that what we know, we know, but maybe there's some areas of our life that we really don't know? Here's the good news. It doesn't matter because God loves you anyway. And I guess for me, that's the picture of grace and truth. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. You know, I grew up as a kid when my dad, his whistle directed me. He would let out a whistle and it meant come home or it meant stop doing what you're doing. And he didn't have to interpret it for me. I knew. My question to you this morning is, when's the last time you heard the whistle? Bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, this morning, we get to celebrate the sacrament of communion together. And we invite you to search our hearts, to show us the areas in our life, to poke and prod and to soften the areas of our hearts so that we become like Nathaniel. Lead us and guide us that we become true followers of you. Lord, lead us with your whistle.